don't forget, you're going to die. Welcome to the We Croak podcast, and I am your host, Hansa Bergwall. Today, we are uh, having a fantastic guest for you, uh, Frank Ostaseski. He is the co-founder of the Zen Hospice Project in San Francisco, which has for many, many years been a place that people go to live beautifully in their last days. And he's written this book about his experiences going back decades called The Five Invitations, Discovering What Death Can Teach Us About Living Fully. And, you know, it's a book about death and dying, but it's also a beautiful book about practical philosophy, how to take the lessons that we are impermanent, that we will one day die, that there is no avoiding suffering, and live more fully by embracing what's true and honest. And after speaking with Frank, I can say that he is a master of, uh, of these truths, these principles. Uh, I was very moved in our discussion and uh, yeah, just the real deal through and through. So I uh, hope you enjoy the, the podcast and I hope you also check out his book because it, uh, it can help with the whole living thing. And one more thing, he did want me to mention uh, that you can find him at fiveinvitations.com great way to get connected with, uh, you know, this sort of practical philosophy and uh, death and dying wisdom. So yeah, hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much, Frank, for joining us. Really happy to be with you, Hansa. Yeah, so your book, The Five Invitations, Discovering What Death Can Teach Us About Living Fully. What a great read. (laughs) Thanks, that's very kind of you to say. You know, I saw so many people that I've been with over the years, dying in regret and fear. And I thought we could do something about that. And so the book is really a kind of invitation for us to step into the subject and to step into this experience um, before we find ourselves on our own deathbed. Yeah, so can you talk about that a little bit? Like, why does death have invitations to begin with? And, and why should we say yes Well, you know, a a life that doesn't include death is kind of half a life, isn't it? I mean, it's a package deal, life and death. They come together. Uh, We can't get one without the other. And so we can't really fully live unless we're really engaging and and, um, moving toward this experience of dying. The other thing is I think it shows us what's most important. You know, if at the time of your death, you know, what I've seen over the years is that people aren't really worried about their regrets at the time of their death, and they're not so concerned about what happens after they die. They really want to know really basic questions like, am I loved? And did I love well? Those are the things that really matter to people when they're dying. Now, if those things matter at the time of our death, don't they matter to us now? And why wait until the time of our death to answer those questions, you know, and to step into that kind of exploration? Yeah, and that's the first invitation, don't wait, <laughs> which is so beautiful. And people have been saying this for thousands of years. Um, I think it was Seneca that said, the whole future lives in uncertainty, live immediately. So it's, it's a tried and true message. How did you come to caring for the dying? Oh, I think by mistake, you know. Um... You know, I don't know about you, but my life has not followed a linear path. You know, it, it meanders, you know. Um, I did all kinds of things in my life, but uh, I worked with people who were severely disabled for a long time. I worked in refugee camps where I saw a lot of horrible dying. Um, it was impossible to redeem. And then in San Francisco, uh, the AIDS epidemic came along in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, and I was there at the forefront of that, that epidemic. and good friends were dying and we didn't know what we were dealing with and so we just stepped in to be of some service. For me also being a Buddhist practitioner and teacher for all these years uh, has been a big influence. The central teaching of Buddhism is that all compound things are impermanent. Everything is subject to constant change. And to resist that teaching or to resist that truth is a better way to say it, is to suffer. And so the reflection on death is a really important part of that tradition, and that was an early influence in my life as well. And then, you know, more personally, my own parents died when I was really young. 
you know, my mom when I was about 16 and my dad a few years later. And so death and I were introduced to each other quite early on in my life, you know. And so since then we've been doing our best to become friends. Oh, wow. And I have to say that while reading this book, it does feel like speaking to a friend. I mean, you know, it seems that as crazy as it sounds, one of the gifts of death is just there's a lot of good stories of how people, what people do at the end. And you you share them here. Well, you know, I wanted the book to be conversational, kind of like what we're doing now, actually. I wanted it to feel like we could... Um, it wasn't written in stone, so to speak, you know. It could be something that we would explore and learn together. You know, you and I were talking before the broadcast about the power of stories, that people can enter a story wherever they need to, and then they, you know, meander in that story, and then they can get out wherever they need to. I mean, that's why all the great myths are given to us in oral traditions, you know. So, yeah, there's wonderful stories about what happens when people die. You know, dying is beautiful and transformative, but it's also messy and painful, you know? I'm not romantic about dying. I think it's the hardest work we may ever do. But above all, beyond all of those things, it's ordinary, it's normal. Everybody goes through it, you know? Nobody gets out of here alive, you know? And so, the stories are about real people, you know, and real experiences. They aren't all beautiful. They, aren't, they don't all work out well and have a ribbon tied on top, you know? They are people struggling, facing what it means to be human. Yeah, so I'm remembering one story, and there's so many that just sound ethereal and beautiful, like, I want to die like that. <laughs> and then there are ones like this um, this daughter whose last words to her mother, who had, who had been abusive right before she died, was, I hate you. Yeah. Um, and you share those stories, too. Yeah, this this young woman who was staying with us at the hospice, and her and her mother had, had been very estranged. They hadn't spoken in years. And her mom, as you remember from the story, had been quite abusive to her in lots of different ways. And um, the girl slipped into a kind of uh, semi-comatose state, you know. She was not responding for a few days, not eating, not drinking anymore. And her mother came from across the country to be with her. And I remember so distinctly her mother sitting down beside the bed and pouring her heart out to her daughter. She was really sincere. You know, she said, please forgive me. I'm so sorry for what I did. She was genuinely, genuinely sorry. And then this daughter did this most remarkable thing. She sat up in bed like a rocket, straight up. She hadn't moved in days. And she looked at her mother straight in the eyes. I'm looking at you. And she said, I hate you. I've always hated you. And then she died. How do we keep our heart open in that kind of hell, you know? I mean, for some of us, that's our worst nightmare. Certainly every parent's worst nightmare, you know? There was a lot of suffering in the room that day. Mom was suffering. Those of us that were bearing witness to this were suffering. But there was also something else in the room, and that was the daughter spoke the truth. Maybe a truth she'd been waiting to say all her life, you know? And it was a harsh truth. It wasn't pleasant to hear, but it was important that it got spoken. And in fact, it was really important to that mom. I worked with that mom for about six months after her daughter's death over the phone. And the fact that her daughter met her that way, with that kind of truth, made the mother confront their whole history together and to really find some self-forgiveness that she wasn't able to even come close to before. So death isn't always beautiful, but usually it's true. Oh, yeah. And that, that was what struck me about this book was how it would make room even for, you know, the worst thing, the, the, the stories that you'd think you wouldn't be able to bear. You know, I'm always astonished, in a way, by our humanity and what we can include. Not just what we can endure. I don't mean that. It's not just toughing it out, you know. I mean, what the heart can actually open to. It's phenomenal to me what, as human beings, we can actually include. Uh, what our compassionate hearts can expand and open to. It doesn't mean that we have to agree with what happens. It doesn't mean that we have to like it or approve of it. That's not our job. Our job is to meet it 
and to see what it has to teach us. Yeah, and that, that was another part that I think really even changed my expectations about, you know, what life and death can be and what it should be. You, you shared these two stories kind of side by side, sort of making an implicit comparison. And the, the first one was about a, a doctor who, seeing um, a patient who was very close to death um, and the patient telling her that he was tired, uh, refused to make eye contact, you know, retreated behind a very clinical role, prescribed extreme radiation the next day, which he didn't actually make it live for, and missed this moment to show humanity. Uh, and then a few pages later about a hospice nurse who, you know, a patient said that she had a fat ass, and instead of being offended or being clinical, she shook it and said, ah, oh, come on, you know it's sexy, or something like along those lines. And then they both laughed together. And it really struck me that, uh, you know, what we th think life should be like, you know, in these spaces isn't necessarily, you know, what actually works in the moment. Yeah, you know, Hansa, I think that what I've seen over the years, and, you know, this is just my perspective, is that the people who seem to move toward their dying with some grace are people who have been willing to live into the deeper questions of what it means to be human. You know, this doctor that you're speaking about was an oncologist. This was a patient who'd come off the streets of San Francisco. And he was, um, he was a very loyal guy. And his feeling was, if doctors were trying to help him, his job was to show up. And so really, he was so exhausted and really close to his death. And I said, let's skip the appointment today. And he said, no. He said, you can't expect people to help you unless you show up for the help. I said, okay, and we went to the hospital. I saw this oncologist, and the oncologist was just busy and scared. She wasn't a mean person, you know? She was in this work doing the best job she can, but sometimes people get so overwhelmed by the work, so flooded by the suffering that they see every day that they, they create some kind of armoring around their hearts, you know, to keep them protected. The terrible part about that is that that armoring that we imagine will keep us safe from the pain of someone else's suffering really also locks out the tenderness and the kindness that we most need in our life, particularly when we're facing a lot of suffering every day. And so that's what happened with this doctor. She just, just couldn't see him. And when he said, I'm tired, she just kept going on her, with her protocols. And she, as you suggest, um, suggested a rather radical treatment, and he accepted, but he came back to the hospice that night and he died. And she missed a really great opportunity to just be human to human with him, uh, soul to soul, heart to heart. Whereas, you know, Sarah, who was a home health aide working in a beautiful hospice uh, in Washington, D.C. called Joseph's House, one of the best places I know. Sarah, you know, it was, it was work, she was working mostly with the homeless population, in this case, African-American woman, who just thought this tall, lanky, you know, white girl couldn't really relate to her, you know? And so basically she was testing her, you know? So one day she said, what do you know about being with me and my die? You and your bony to last, she said to Sarah, you know? And uh, Sarah, you know, she could feel that moment where her whole being clenched and she wanted to like escape from the room, but she didn't. You know, she turned back to her and sort of did this repartee, you know, this playful repartee with her, shaking her butt and saying, you love my butt, you know you love my butt. And, uh, and then the two of them broke into hysterics. And again, what that was, was just the opposite, the willingness to just be human with each other. And you know, in that moment, it wasn't about dying. It was about building trust. It was about two people finding their way to trust together, yeah. I think a lot of people might find that idea threatening of letting go of these clinical roles around the dying. Well, we like to hide behind our treasured roles, you know? Um, you know, I'm a Buddhist teacher. Here you are, launching this podcast. You know, we got roles. And it's okay that we have roles. As long as we don't confuse them with who we are. When I stay hidden behind my role as the helper, it means somebody else has got to be helpless, you know? I, 
I had a heart attack a few years ago, and I was in the hospital. Triple bypass surgery, a big deal, you know. When I was in my room recovering in the days after the surgery, people would come in the room and they'd ask me, how are you today? And I'd say, miserable. And they'd say, you'll be better tomorrow. And I'd say, well, today's not tomorrow. Today I'm miserable. No one was really willing to be with me in my suffering, just as it was. Everybody had a protocol or a procedure or, a, you know, wishful thinking about my condition. Everyone wanted to cheer me up. No one wanted to just hang out with me and say, yeah, this sucks. This is horrible to be in pain. It's not fun to be in suffering. I get it. I remember one day I went into the bathroom and I just sat on the toilet and cried. And this nurse came to the door and said, are you okay? And then I said, yes, I'm fine, I'm fine, it's okay, you can leave me alone. And she kept knocking on the door, she said, you know, you should come out now, you should come out now, and it's okay. And I said, please leave me alone. And she said, should I call a social worker? And I said, no, I'm just crying. Because you see, I had the confidence that if I was willing to turn toward my suffering, whatever it was, and touch it with some degree of tenderness, that my own innate compassion would show up. It would rise to the surface and be there as a guide for me to show me how to navigate this territory. We're so often caught up in our protocols and our procedures, and thank God for them. If not for all those procedures, I wouldn't be here sitting with you. You know, medicine saved my life, and I'm really grateful for it, honestly grateful for it. But medicine is often future-oriented, and all its procedures and protocols are about that future event or that future outcome. And it's really difficult to stay present when everybody around you is future-focused. So I think that sometimes when we're with people uh, who are sick or dying, uh, to really learn how to be present with them, right here, right now, just as we are. And, you know, I speak for myself and I think a lot of people that getting out of the future and the protocols when someone is really suffering is really hard. You yourself share this story of falling to your knees and crying one time when you were trying to get the hang of it. What, uh, you know, for those of us who haven't spent a life in hospice care uh, and service, but let's say a loved one is, uh, is in that place of great suffering or, or, or near death, how could we show up for them? To be fully human is to just be ourself and to trust that that's enough to be ourself. No, that doesn't mean that we throw out treatment plans and protocols that are useful and helpful to people. Uh, at the Zen Hospice that I founded, we had, you know, morphine by the 55-gallon drums. I'm, I'm being facetious here, but what I mean to say is we used the best of what medicine had to offer. But medicine, as brilliant as it is, is not a big enough model to embrace the profundity of what happens in the dying process. Dying is bigger than medicine. And so we need to bring the best of what medicine has to offer, but we don't necessarily always want to let it drive. You know, one of the things that I think is important to remember in this country is that we're always talking about health care reform, and I'm all in favor of that. We need to reform our system dramatically. But what we forget sometimes is that the people that are really doing the care are ordinary people, people like you and I, mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers, who are taking care of their loved ones. They're doing most of the care. And nobody taught them how to do it. You know, maybe they learned a little something from their grandma or some family story or myth that's been part of their lives. But they just used their good hearts in the best way that they possibly could. Now, I'm not suggesting that that alone is enough. But medicine alone is not enough. People want a human face on their medical care. They want somebody who looks them in the eye and really cares about them. So I think that one of the things that family members can do or friends can do is really trust in their good hearts to be a reliable guide. Yeah? And that when they are in a situation in a healthcare setting or some other medical environment, to really understand the importance of being an advocate for their loved one. Not just to help them maneuver the system and get the best care possible, they should absolutely be able to do that, but also to be an advocate for their hearts and for their souls as they move through that system. And when they do that, they're not only be taking good care of their loved one, but they're gonna have a positive effect 
on the people who are working in that system and the system itself. Yeah, and this is where it really feels like the invitations for dying are also exactly what at least I want for a living. When I really, really think about it, I mean, what do I want most in a day is, you know, for my husband to really be present with me and to share a nice meal or mm. to spend time with a friend or another family member or just to laugh with somebody. Even if I just met, like, you know, that sort of human to human, that is so much of the richness of life. Absolutely, you know. And, and why wait until our death to discover that? Why not shine the light of death on life so that we could really use it well? Hello, everyone. We thought we'd take a nice little pause in our conversation so that me, Ian Thomas, and the amazing host of the We Croak podcast... Hey, it's Hans of You know, we've actually set up a really cool Patreon page that you could find by heading over to our website at wecroak.com. There are some super cool things for you to enjoy if you decide to support us on Patreon. You know, Hans and I, we, we do this whole project just out of our, our passion, and we love doing it that way. And we want to find ways to keep doing it that way for as basically as long as you'll put up with us. So thanks for taking the time to consider being a supporter of ours or um, sending us an email or using the contact us form. We, we read everyone and we love hearing from you. Yeah, and if you don't want to support us, that's cool too. Uh, we can totally live with that. Just, you know, send us uh, an email through the website and tell us, you know, what brands you'd like us to advertise instead because these podcasts take a lot of work. And now, back to the show. So let's talk about these, you know, invitations from death about sure. how to die, but also how to live today, even if it's decades away. What, so what are the five invitations? Let's, let's okay. spell it out for our listeners. So what, just to give you some background, we created these invitations as sort of guides for how to be with people who are dying. And they served as the primary principles that we used at the Zen Hospice Project when I was there guiding it. But then we realized that they had a relevance for the rest of us in living a full, meaningful, and happy life. And so we've extended them. We, we've tried to show also where they could have an impact in the other domains of our life. So the first one is don't wait. Don't wait. You know, waiting is full of expectation. Waiting for the next moment to arrive. We miss this one. The second invitation is welcome everything. Push away nothing. Now that seems almost absurd to say that. Welcome everything? But the welcome doesn't mean we have to like it or agree with it. It just means we have to be willing to meet it and see what it has to show us. That kind of welcoming isn't, uh, can't be done as an act of will. It's, it's an act of love. And the third is um, bring your whole self to the experience. You know, don't just show up with your role. Don't just show up with how you think you should be at the bedside. Bring your whole self. You know, for me, when I'm working with someone who's dying, I'm always looking at my own fear, at my own grief. And that's what enables me to build an empathetic bridge from my experience to theirs. The um, fourth one is find a place of rest in the middle of things. I like that one. Find a place of rest in the middle of things. You know, we're always imagining we're going to rest when our list is checked off, when we go on vacation, you know. But we have to learn, especially when we're working with someone who's dying, it's exhausting. So we've got to learn how to rest right in the middle of what we're doing. And we do that by bringing our attention fully and completely to whatever it is we're doing. And the fifth is um, cultivate don't know mind. I felt obliged to put something Zen-like in this list, you know. And Zen's full of these kinds of expressions, you know, that sort of challenge the logical mind. What does it mean, cultivate don't know mind? Does that mean to become ignorant? I don't think so. Ignorance is not not knowing. Ignorance is that we know something, but it's the wrong thing, and then we insist on it. There's a lot of that going on in the culture right now. So to cultivate a donor mind is to cultivate a mind that's open and receptive and full of wonder and curiosity. So those are the five invitations that we use as guides for being with people who are dying. But also, as you can see, they have an uh, application to the rest of our lives. Yeah? And they all interpenetrate one another. So if you pull on one, you, you get the other four uh, right along with them. So we can talk about them if you want. Yeah, let's, let's talk about them because, you know, if these are invitations that help with dying, but also good for living. 
you know, some of them are just so counterintuitive in a way, you know, such as you know, bring your whole self. Yeah. I think, let's say you're headed to a party or, you know, something like that, and you're having a little bit of social anxiety. I think most people, maybe everyone, can relate to that at one time or another. I think my natural inclination, as well as a lot of people's, would be to leave that at the door, to try to hide it <laughs> and just smile and, you know, get, like... Wait, for, like wait for it to go away, so I could enjoy the party. What what could you do instead? <laughs> well, if if that works, go for it. You know, if it actually does go away, and you're not just, you know, somehow suppressing it, great. Maybe it's a really good strategy. You know, I, I think about this again, going coming back to when people are dying. You know, your, your mother dies, and then you go to that same party. You know, and nobody mentions it. Nobody mentions it. Because we're afraid to upset you, you know? That's another way the anxiety shows up. And so we leave the person who's grieving isolated, alone, without any tender care. So I think what we can do in such situations is actually turn toward our experience and get to know it. You know, when something has got us in its grip, we're kind of victim to it. But when we explore it and get to know it and become intimate with it, then it doesn't have us in such a stranglehold anymore. Like, for example, when you're afraid, do you know that you're afraid? Usually, yeah. Okay, great. So how do you know you're afraid? It's a visceral, physical thing. You know, your heart races. You feel it. Beautiful. So your heart races. Maybe there's some kind of tension in your throat or your chest. Yes? Yes. Maybe your toes start to curl. Or your mouth gets dry. You know, those begin, these are sort of the early warning signs, if you will, that fear is coming. Here it comes, you know. And we want to get to know it in those early warning signs. But there's something else that's happening. I asked you, when you're afraid, do you know, if you, do you know that you're afraid? And you said, yes, most of the time. Well, that part of you that knows you're afraid, it's not afraid. It's not afraid. Now, that's not just some Buddhist woo-woo stuff, you know. There's a part of us that knows what's happening, and we can orient to that awareness, or we can orient to the fear. We can make our decisions out of the fear, or we can make our decisions out of the awareness. It's a choice that we get to make all the time. But we, we need to learn to recognize the awareness that's present. It's like if we look around this room, we'll see various objects in the room, you know, the microphones, the tables, the chairs, etc. but we won't always see the space that's here. And it's really important that we include the space, right? Just as it's really important that we include the awareness, not just the objects of the awareness. So I think that's a really simple and skillful way of working with strong emotions, difficult states of mind that have a tendency to overwhelm us. Yeah, and it's, it's tricky because it sounds like some of these, you know, even if you're able to do them, you know, your community might not be able to. You use that example of, like, your mother dies and you go to a party. Well, you know, that happened to me when I was 11. And a lot of people stopped talking to me, including family members. Just yeah. wouldn't visit. What was it like? It was terrible. What was terrible about it? Being shunned because something bad had happened to me. Oh, something bad had happened to you. You didn't do something bad. But because something bad had happened to you, they kept you at a distance. That's right. And there you were, isolated, alone, unable to find a way out, maybe? I mean, that's what I felt like, yes. Yeah. What would have helped? I mean, what did help were the people who could sit with me. Right. Someone who could just sit by your side and not necessarily give you any advice or try and make it better, but just keep you company. Yes. Yeah, so... It did help a lot. These are good invitations. <laughs> well, you know, that's just an invitation to be human, right? Uh, we, what happens is for all those friends or family members who couldn't be with you in some way is that they get scared. They think there's a right way to do it or a wrong way to do it, you know? And we forget about the simplicity and the incredible healing power of simple human presence just like you and I sitting here now, in the middle of it. I mean, here we are. In this present moment, is your mother's dying, and that moment of isolation, that little kid that was so scared, 
You know, that's all right here, right now. And all we need to do is be tender with it, kind with it, allow it to show itself. That was really nice, thank you. You're welcome. I'm sorry that you didn't get that when you were younger. I'm glad we could share it now. So let's, yeah, that was really beautiful, thank you. Let's talk about creating some quiet space <laughs> for ourselves. That's, that's not so good we're, to do we're in the middle of, uh, <laughs> no, we're, we're in the middle of Manhattan uh, next to the Empire State Building in a, in a recording studio today. One of the, you know, least quiet zip codes that there is. And, uh, you know, let's say we're rushing around. Often I think the reason we're too scared to meet people where they are is we're busy, we're stressed, we're, we're running through it. We live in New York City or San Francisco, or um, uh, there's traffic or something. How, how do you suggest slowing down so that we can really show up for the people we care about? Well, like anything else, it's a practice, you know. Having the intention to slow down and the attention to know that we're actually slowing down, um, those are essential starting places. I, I like to ritualize small unimportant things. You know, for example, I go into a lot of rooms in hospitals and other kinds of settings. And one of the silly things that I do is that I look to see whether the hinges are on the right, the hinges for the door are on the right or on the left. And if they're on the right, I step through with my right foot. And if they're on the left, I step through with my left foot. Now, this could be considered obsessive compulsive disorder or mindfulness. You name it. You know? <laughs> uh, I, I prefer to think about it as mindfulness. It's just a way of recognizing that I'm crossing a threshold, that I'm coming into a new world. You know, coming into the land of the sick. Susan Sontag wrote about this. You know, the land of the ill. And it's a different world, and it has a different language, and it has a different pace. And so I have to adjust myself to that experience in some way. So taking small things, you know. Uh, at our office, we had a rule that you couldn't answer the phone on the first ring. The first ring of the phone was an opportunity for you to settle, feel your breath, sense your body a bit, and then when you answered the phone, you'd actually be available to the person on the other line, you know. Or between patients, you know, nurses have to wash their hands and doctors have to wash their hands in between one patient and the next. That's a good, great hygiene protocol. But when you're washing your hands, just wash your hands. Don't try and do seven other things at the same time. Keep it simple, you know. Take ordinary activities and ritualize them. Make them opportunities for mindfulness. The mindfulness movement is exploding across our country. You know it as well as I. And, you know, in some ways it's become the new black suitable for all occasions, you know. But mindfulness isn't the cure-all for everything. And not everybody's going to sit cross-legged like a pretzel and meditate. The amount of people that do that in the world are relatively small. But all of us can find something that pulls our attention back into this immediacy of this moment. Sometimes that's a walk in nature. Sometimes it's stopping in the middle of Times Square and looking around and just seeing the hum of activity, the dynamism that's going on all around us. So marking our day or mm, making points in the day when we regularly stop and pay attention as opposed to just get carried along by the momentum of our lives. That's really important. I, I teach Buddhist meditation retreats, and one of those practices is learning to do walking meditation. Now, walking meditation is basically like sitting down, except you're in motion. And generally, when people do it, they do it more slowly. And there was an older woman that I was working with, and she said, I can't do this slow walking. Every time I try to walk slow, I fall down. And we began to explore it a little bit without psychoanalysis, you know, just what happened in her body when she did it. And she realized that she was accustomed to the momentum of her life pushing her forward all the time. And that when she didn't have that momentum, she didn't, she didn't know how to navigate the world, literally, physically, she couldn't navigate the world. So like the habits of our life, they have a very strong momentum. And they carry through into the moment of our dying. And so the question that arises for me is, what habits do we want to create now? Do we want to live our life with a high degree of control? Or are we willing to let go once in a while and see what happens? To have a sense of discovery and curiosity about life.
wow, it's occurring to me, I've walked through I don't know how many millions of doors in my life, and I've never once noticed if the hinges were on the left or right. <laughs> that simply noticing more of our surroundings itself can be part of getting us there. But you know, the, re the reason I do that is that as a boy, as a teenager, about the same time your mom died, um, I'm, both my parents were alcoholics, and they were, my mom was really um, unable to function. And I used to get called to the principal's office as a 12-year-old boy, and the principal would say, you have to go home and help your mom. She had emphysema, and so I had to come home and help give her oxygen. I was 12. I had no business doing that when I was 12 years old. But sometimes I would come home to the house and I would touch the doorknob on our front door, it's cold brass knob, I remember. And I never knew what I was going to find on the other side of that door. I didn't know if I'd find my mother passed out on the kitchen floor or the stove on. I never knew what I'd find. And there was something about touching that brass handle of the door, knob of the door, and turning it that really got my attention. But years later, when I was practicing meditation, um, the teacher was encouraging us to pay attention to small things like this. And I remember going through a doorway and turning the knob and breaking into tears because it reminded me of this experience when I was a kid. And the teacher, who was very skillful at the time, really helped me, really listened to me through that experience, and that was really helpful. But then that, that thing that was a point of terror for me, going through a doorway, became a mindfulness practice for me, a way of opening myself to life rather than shutting myself down to life. So even our wounds can help us heal and grow. What occurs to me as you share this story is that so often mindfulness is, I think people, at least I've thought about it this way, it's, it sounds like wiping your slate clean, that you can have some sort of transcendent, almost impersonal peace or joy or something. And this story about the thresholds and the doorknobs and the hinges, it's so personal. Yeah, I think it has to be personal. You know, and it's both. It's impersonal in the sense that it's a universal experience for all of us. That's what mindfulness and meditation practice can help us discover. And also it's very personal. It's both of those things. And, and when we try swapping and picking one over the other, I think we get lost. I want to be free as much as possible. And so that means I gotta see what's true. And so the only thing that's gonna allow me to really discover that and stay with that exploration, which is really hard, is love. I mean, if there's a mountain lake that you love to hike to, you know, and it's a tall, long climb, you gotta love the lake. Otherwise, you won't set out at all. But it's not enough to love the lake. You gotta love the climb up the mountain. Otherwise, when the mosquitoes come out, you'll turn back, right? You won't go. So in this life of ours, we have to love the truth. And not one big truth that religion has a corner market on, but to discover what's true right now. And if we do that, if we discover what's true in this moment, then more truth reveals itself. And that's really all we have to do. But the love of the truth becomes the motivating factor, the fuel, if you will, for the journey through life. I don't think our life is just about being happy. I don't think that, I think that's a shallow notion that our life is just about being happy. I think our life is about discovering what's true. And one of the things that's true is that we're all born and we all die. And we have to remember that to keep living on true ground. Yeah, not, not as some kind of oppressive, awful, scary reminder, but just that it's part of life. And it's not it doesn't just happen at the end of a long road, it's in the marrow of every passing moment. You know, you want to study death, you want to know something about death, study the way you meet endings. I mean, how do you meet an ending? How do you meet an ending of, you know, this podcast, of this sentence, of a relationship? You know, you were talking about a party earlier, and how do you leave a party? Do you just ghost out, you know, hoping or imagining that no one will remember that you were there? Or do you actually go around and say goodbye to people? Again, the way we, I don't have a moral judgment about how we're supposed to meet endings. I have no idea how you're supposed to do it. I just want to know how do you do it? 
And how does that set up a particular habit in your life? And again, I think that habit carries through into the time of our dying. So study endings. You know, what happens at the end of the exhale before the next inhale? What happens in that moment? I mean, for me, that's a moment of, you know, faith or fear, really. Do you start reaching for the next in-breath, imagining that you have to grab hold of it in order for it to continue, or do you simply allow it to emerge? You know, the breath has been going along just fine with it before you paid attention to it, but then once we start paying attention, we start imagining that we have to manage it in some way. So studying endings, I think, is... is Oh, we don't, then death just doesn't become this boogeyman at the end of our life. It's only about illness and, you know, torturous, you know, pain and these kinds of things. It reminds me of a, a story from your book. Of, um, I think her name was Crystal, who called you um, at the deathbed of her teacher, wanting to read her from the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which wasn't necessarily part of this teacher's tradition. And you, you had some different advice for her. Well, I try not to give too much advice because advice usually doesn't help. But I like to inquire. I'm a curious guy, and I like to ask questions, you know. And so they called me, and they said, you know, our teacher's here, and she's a very well-known person. And they said, we'd like to read her the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and we wonder if you could come over and guide us in that practice. And I said, well, what makes you think she wants to read the Tibetan Book of the Dead? That she wants it read to her. And they said, well, she's been a remarkable teacher, and she's led a remarkable life, and we want to help her to have a remarkable death. I listened, and I said, well, suppose she wants a perfectly ordinary death. And I hung up. <laughs> but about a half hour later they called back and they said listen we, we thought about what you said and, and, and we really we understood it and we want to we just want to support her the best way we can and I said great I said what is she telling you oh she's not speaking she hasn't spoken in days I said you're not listening closely enough bring the phone to the bedside so they brought the phone into her bedside and I said okay now look again what's she, what she telling you well she's not able to speak I said listen more closely is she perspiring? Yes, I said. I said, good, then get a cool cloth and put it on her forehead. Wonderful. And then I suggested something very simple. I said, how is she breathing? And they said, a little bit erratic. And so I said, well, breathe with her. When she would breathe in, you breathe in. And when she breathes out, you breathe out. Just that simple. And really, this was just a way to get them to align and harmonize with where she was in this moment. After about 20 minutes, I said, How's it going? And they said, well, we don't know about her, but we're much calmer than we were before. <laughs> I said, great, terrific. I said, you know, call me back if you need any more help. And um, some hours later, they called me back to say that the teacher had died when everybody was out of the room. And she died a perfectly ordinary, quite peaceful, quite calm, deaf. So I think sometimes we want to, even in the dying process, micromanage the experience. Insert our little intelligence on a much on a process that's much bigger than mm, the surface mm, of the detail, uh, the surface of the experience. Much deeper than all that. And I think uh, we can really trust dying. I think it has in it certain conditions which are conducive to our waking up. Now again, I'm not romanticizing dying. We need to bring the best of what medicine has to offer, best hospice care, palliative care, etc. However, there are other things that are happening in the dying process that are helpful for us. All the ways I've defined myself, you know, I'm a Buddhist teacher, I'm a father, I'm a husband. All of those identities are stripped away in the dying process. And I get down to something much more fundamental and essential about who I am. So, absolutely, it's, it's beautiful. And I want to share with you one more, like, you also share this story in this book of a very elegant man who comes wearing, like, silk ties and having dinner parties with champagne flutes. Um, but then as he gets closer to dying and becomes disorienting, disoriented, he begins, quote-unquote, not acting like himself. In fact, even groping people and things like that. Um, so what? how do you... You know, you say bring all of yourself, allow, but what, what, like this can be very challenging. How do you deal with that? Yeah, I, I don't have the um, 
expectation that it won't be challenging. I think it will be challenging. I think dying challenges us right to our very bones, particularly if we're with someone that we love and care for. And they are presenting themselves in a way that's unfamiliar to us. We want, what happens then is we want to manage that experience. We want to get that person to be the person they used to be instead of moving with the flow, you know, moving with the fact that this person is changing moment to moment and being willing to be with that new experience. When people have dementia or Alzheimer's um, or just sometimes uh, through the organic process of dying, they get disoriented, they get confused. Can we relax around that a little bit? You know, I, I had an aunt, Aunt Mimi, and she was wonderful. She was a powerhouse of a woman, single woman all her life. And I went to see her um, not long before she died. And she was quite confused. I mean, she'd throw her dress up over her head. She'd drool. She would call me by different names, thinking I was different people. And um, this one afternoon, I was sitting with her, and I thought, you know, I wonder about Mimi's life. She never had a husband. She never had a beau of any kind. And so I asked her, I said, hey, Mimi, how come you never had a sweetheart? And this woman who'd been, you know, drooling and throwing her dress over her head, sat up straight as can be in her wheelchair and folded her arms, and she said, some questions are too personal to ask. And then she went away again. And what it reminded me of, Hans, is, I mean, there's always a whole human being there, even if they're in a distressing disguise. And it doesn't mean we'll always be able to reach or get the feedback from that whole human being that's there. We might get a very garbled message coming through the communication systems, but there's a whole human being there. My job as a companion is to keep relating to that whole human being, not just to their symptoms and their distressing disguise. There was a guy <laughs> in our hospice, Jake, and he came off the streets. He was from New Orleans. He was a tough guy. And the first night he was in the hospice, he was in a double room, and this... Um, and his roommate's daughter was having an argument with her father, who was the patient in the bed next to him. And Jake got really furious at this. You know, he had this kind of street toughness that said, you know, respect your parents. That was his, that's what he'd been reared on. And so he still got in an argument with the daughter. And I pulled him back to his side of the room. I said, Jake, that's their stuff. You can't get involved in this. And he pulled up his pants leg, and he had a bayonet in his boot. As the first day he came into the hospice, he said, I, can, I know how to get her to shut up. Now, we can all be about oneness and wholesomeness and, you know, all this stuff, but sometimes you just got to make boundaries. And so I said to, to Jake, Jake, you need to give me the bayonet. I said, I promise I'll keep it for you, and if you leave the hospice, I'll give it back to you. I said, I won't get rid of it. I, I promise I'll keep it. He, no way he wanted to turn this over to me. But he understood, really, something. He said, I, I, didn't, I wasn't trying to make him different. I was just setting this boundary. And he, he handed over his protection to me, actually, which was a gesture of unbelievable trust on his part. Now, we became good friends. But as he got closer to his death, he got really confused. And one day, he talked this newbie volunteer into bringing him to the corner store to, uh, to uh, get a coffee. He was, he was crawling out of his skin. He, he knew his dying was coming very shortly, and he, it wasn't just symbolic language. He wanted to get out of his skin. It wasn't just, I want to go home and return to my peacefulness. So they went to the corner store, he went to the coffee shop, and he called 911. And the ambulance came. And I arrived on the scene, and there was all this chaos, and Jake was strapped down to a gurney inside the ambulance, and the ER, the, the uh, emergency response folks were there. And I asked the head of the team, I said, can I just speak to him for a moment? He said, no, he's really upset. And Jake's inside the, the ambulance screaming, screaming at the top of his lungs, they're trying to kill me in there. They're trying to kill me in there. And I said, let me just have some time with him. And I went in, and the, the paramedic allowed me to go in. And I sat down on the bench next to him, and he started screaming, he's the one trying to kill me. He's the one. And so I just sat there and I felt my feet on the ground and I felt my affection for Jake. And I just talked to his soul. And I said, Jake, you know I love you and I would never hurt you. 
And he started screaming, no, he's the one, he's trying to kill him, get him out of here. And the paramedics getting increasingly more nervous and everybody's beginning to freak out. And I just keep repeating to Jake, Jake, you know I love you and I would never hurt you. And then out of the middle of all this craziness, he said, I know, Frank, that's why I trust you. And the paramedic saw it and he said, oh, this guy's got to stay with you. I said, how, he said, how can we help him? So they gave him a light sedative, and we brought him back upstairs to his room, and two days later, Jake died very peacefully with the friends which had become his family all around him. I, I'm not trying to tell you miracle stories or magic happens. I'm just advocating for including the power of human presence in whatever we do. Whatever procedure or protocol we follow, whatever our role is, let's not leave out our whole humanness. So when I say bring your whole self to the experience, I mean really bring your whole self. Bring your fear, bring your anxiety, bring your grief, bring your love to the experience, whatever it is. Wow. My last question was just to see if you had any final words of, of wisdom for us, but that is such a beautiful place to, to say thank you. <laughs> Maybe that's the most important thing to really get at the end. You know, what really matters more than anything is, are we loved? Do we love well? And, and to live a life that's characterized by gratefulness. It's going to come to an end. You know, everybody we love will die, and we'll die along with them. The question is, how do we want to care for them now? How do we want to care for ourselves now? Knowing that truth, how do we want to meet our life? So thanks. Thanks for making the time to do this. And for all that you're doing with this podcast and with the We Croak app, I think it's great. And uh, I'm fully in support of it. So thanks for doing that. Thank you so much. You could find Frank Ostaseski at fiveinvitations.com. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. There, you'll find all sorts of helpful articles and videos. Thank you to all of you for listening. And special thanks for your amazing reviews on iTunes. And to all our wonderful patrons. Hope you have a great week, and see you next time.